once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. The last event of the Summer Olympics is the marathon. It ends right before the closing ceremonies. The runners finish inside the main stadium, entering to the cheers after 26 miles of effort. This is how Jesus brings us into the kingdom, not just getting to the finish line, but getting there with a roar. Lead teacher Randy Pope continues the series, The Ticket, Imputed Righteousness, with this message entitled, Benefit Number 3, Protection from God's Wrath, which covers Romans chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. Thank you for joining us today. We're in a study of the book of Romans, and we're in the fifth chapter. If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn there. It was in the late 90s that American Express popularized their card by a little slogan, and the slogan said, went something like this, membership has its what? Privileges. Yeah, we hear that all the time. Membership has its privileges, and certainly it does. That is, of course, true as well of the Christian church. When you're truly in the bride of Christ, meaning you are a real Christian, not just a member of a local church, But as a member of a local church, you are truly a Christian. There are certain benefits that go with that. The Apostle Paul, in the portion of Scripture that we're looking at in this series, which begins in chapter 3, verse 20, and goes through the end of chapter 5, and this portion of Scripture, he's actually now listing some of the great benefits of being in the family of God. He's going to use a term called exalting to talk about what we do as Christians because of the benefits that we enjoy. Don't want to make this confusing, but to be truthful to the text, you see Paul at this point as we come in the series, Paul is listing and talking about these three benefits that we'll look at in just a moment, and then he kind of crisscrosses them with three different objects of exaltation. Sometimes they're connected, sometimes they're not directly connected. It's not a one-to-one, but the three of the benefits that I'm about to mention with the three of the objects of exaltation that we'll mention as well. So just keep those two words, benefits and objects. First, let's look at the three benefits that we're addressing. We've already looked at two of them. We're going to look at the third this week, three benefits of imputed righteousness. Now, he's using that term righteousness as that which God has placed within us at the spiritual birth of one's life. For you that are trying to figure out the Christian faith, understand what is this thing, being a Christian, following Jesus, uh, whatever that means, what are we talking about? We're not talking about just a decision that I will obey what God has to say. But it's coming into a love relationship that drives even a desire to obey what God has to say. It's a love relationship. And it's, it's given to us through the means of God's righteousness being placed within us. It's called in Scripture a mystical union where we are now made one with Jesus. I mean, if you really look at it from the outside in, it's a little bizarre. You go, what is this all about? But what Paul is doing in chapter 320 and following is first saying this, please know this, it's not a works righteousness, 
It is an imputed righteousness. It's not what we do for God that causes us to be born into a relationship with him. It's what he does for us. He gives us his righteousness. In chapter 3, 20 through chapter 4 that we've already looked at, he makes it clear that this righteousness comes by means of faith. Faith is something that we are to exhibit. Very important. We have to exhibit faith. However, Scripture teaches us very clearly, faith is first given to us to then exhibit. We'll touch on that a little bit later. When he's talking about this idea of justification, I used a little, uh, little uh, sound like justified, never sinned. It's being declared righteous by God. Chapter 5 is going to pick up and now say, having been justified by faith through Jesus Christ, and then it's going to go on to give us three benefits. Here are the three benefits we're looking at. First is called peace with God. It's found in the first two verses, peace with God. Number two, we looked at in the last of the series, profit in tribulation, meaning that we find advantage as Christians by going through trials, difficulties, tribulations. That's foreign to most people to understand. Paul explains that in verses 3 through 8. And then in verses 9 through 11, what we'll be looking at today, protection from God's wrath. Now, those would be the three benefits that we're looking at. Uh, I want us to now look at the three objects of exaltation, and I'll come back and make them clear. But here are the three objects of our exaltation. One, in the hope of the glory of God, verse 2, the end of verse 2, hope of the glory of God. Number two, in our tribulations, there's that term again, verses 3 through 5, and then in God himself, verse 11. And we're going to be looking at in God, number three, this week. So you follow where we are? Now, it's not going to be all that difficult to make this clear. What does it mean to exalt in God? Uh, What does it mean to be protected from the wrath of God is one of our great benefits. Those two really do line up together. Why would I exalt means to boast or to find my great joy in, rejoicing in. Why would I find myself rejoicing and exalting in God? I'll tell you one reason. Because he has spared me from his wrath. When I bring that subject wrath up, uh, you know, the Christian community, you're okay with that. Okay, we're used to the wrath of God. We've heard about it. I meet with a lot of people who are brand new to even hearing of the Christian faith. I was with a couple of men this last week, and we're just walking through individual different meetings, but just walking through, what does it mean that somebody's a Christian? What does it mean? Why? Help us understand the Bible being God's word. How could it be? And how about these people outside of Christianity deserving separation from God and so forth? And it was in that discussion that one of the men came to me and said, you know what? I, I can't get my mind around this idea of judgment, hell, wrath, whatever you want to call it. I, I, can't, get my, I can't get my mind around that. God's such a good God. 
He wouldn't allow that, would he? A good God? And I know a lot of us here are sitting here thinking the same thing. Just to discuss the wrath of God, do you know that this is the hardest subject, so hard that I don't think many places today want to talk about it. Because many of you are like me, have some very, very, very dear relationships that are now deceased and according to the record of Scripture, probably not a, probably not real Christian. This one man said what I think many of us say. I can't get my, I can't get my mind around this whole idea of, of something as bad as wrath or hell of, and so forth and basically saying, I don't want to believe it. But can I say this to you that are, are struggling there? I, I, I get it. I, I get it. Uh, can anything be worse than thinking about judgment and hell? I understand this today that people are not going to talk about it much because people don't like the subject matter. But I said to my friend as I say to you, listen, please do yourself this favor. Don't dismiss it because you don't want to believe in it. Don't dismiss it because you don't understand it. Don't dismiss it because it doesn't make sense for God. And whatever it is that makes it challenge you, don't dismiss it just because you don't get it. Because whether you dismiss it or not has nothing to do with whether it's going to exist or not exist. And so search it out. Just find out, do you believe? Investigate, do you believe it's real or not? Now, I have the responsibility of teaching Scripture as it comes. And I'm telling you, I don't want to talk about this because I know many of you are like me. They've got loved ones that they've perished already. And, and they didn't have the truth as best we know. And we don't even want to think about it. I don't either. But, folks, this is a real reason that you and I will find ourselves exalting in God when we realize that something so horrific is not going to be ours though deserved to be. That's when you start saying, thank you, God, I exalt in you. That's the big picture of the text, okay? Now, in order to help us understand it, let me, let me go back to the text in Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. And, and this is how we looked at this text. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That is not peace of God. That's different. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith, trusting in Christ alone, into this grace, God given us what we don't deserve, in which we stand. I love this idea, the grace in which we stand. And then it says, and, he begins, we exult in the hope of the glory of God, which is the first of the three objects of exaltation. But I want to go back. Here's the picture in case you're new. I like to think of a circle. And we're born outside the circle of grace. We're born in sin. Well, that raises the question. I told my friend I'm meeting with uh, this last week. I've told both of these guys that I'm meeting with. I said, you know, if I'm you hearing the story of man's sin and that we come into this world separated from God because of our sin, then we have to ask the question, well, what caused me to be a sinner? And we say, well, it had to do with Adam. Adam. Our first parents. 
a lot of you here probably saying, I don't even believe there was a first parent. You got to investigate, figure that out. But according to the record of Scripture, there is a first parent. And that first parent being Adam and his bride, Eve. And it says, because of the sin of Adam, we come into this world a sinner. Now, I told him, I told both these guys, I said, now, if I'm you, I would be asking me this question. Why? Because of something that was done by somebody else long before I ever thought about existing. How could it be that what they did has caused me to now have to suffer the punishment of what he has done? And so, of course, both of them said, well, what's the answer? And, of course, I was able to say, we're going to do that next week. (laughs) And I'm going to be able to say to you, that's what we cover in Chapter 5 following, okay? So we'll come to that next two weeks. But that's a big question. I'm going to hold it off, but it's a big question. But here we are, born into this world, outside this grace of which we're introduced through what Jesus has done for us, we're brought into the circle of grace. In that circle, that's where we now have reason to exalt. Why? Because of the grace of God shown to us. Well, what do you mean, exalt? Exalt in what? And that's what he's going to tell us. First, we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. That's given to us in the the second part of verse 2. It goes like this. Verse 2, the end of verse 2. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God of God. Now, when we think about the hope of the glory of God, we're talking about that which God has promised, which is not yet come. Some of those things promised we'll experience in this life, but most things in the life to come. And he says, for that reason, you're going to stand in this circle and you will exult in the hope of the glory of God. And we talked about what that means and why and so forth. Then the second thing he says to do, and this is what catches us off guard a bit, and we hope also in our tribulation. And so we see it in the next verses, 3 through 5. It says not only that, but we rejoice or exult actually in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I don't remember many messages that got as much feedback as that one did right there. When people said, never got it, never understood it, oh my goodness, heard it over and over and over again, that when we're in that circle, we actually learn to exalt in our tribulations because we understand how they, how they benefit us. We profit from our tribulations. So we begin to exalt while we're in that circle in our tribulations. Now this week we're going to look at the third thing, and we exalt in God himself. But before I get into what does it mean to exalt in God and so forth, I want to remind you of this. What we're saying here is that when we're in the circle of grace, we have to be focused on the, the reasons for our exaltation. And the more we embrace and understand and begin to exalt, the more we have this thing called peace of God. I get peace with God simply by standing in the circle. I can never leave the circle. Once in, always in. Once a Christian, always a Christian. I will forever have the peace with God that I need so that he will love me 
for the rest of my life throughout eternity. But I can stand in this circle and not look at the reasons to exalt because of the grace in which I stand. And I start looking out. And I start looking at all the things I want in life to satisfy. And I exalt in material things. And I exalt in relationships. And I exalt in all these other things. And the more I begin exalting there, the less of the peace of God I'll ever experience. So a couple of things. Know this. That if I... If I am in this circle, I will always have peace with God. But it does not mean I will have the peace of God. That will come in proportion to the way we exalt in these three objects of exaltation. Second thing to be aware of is this, that if I am questioning my own exaltation, and I say, I know nothing of exaltation. I don't find myself exalting at all in the glory of God. I certainly not exalt in my tribulation, and I don't exalt in God either. Then I would question whether I was in the circle of grace. That's where I would say, okay, now I know all of us struggle to exalt in these three while in the grace. But if we're saying, there's not much evidence that I see in my life, then I would say, I want to question, have I really come in to the circle of grace? Because there will be evidences of exaltation in the circle. What we want to do is we want to up it and up it and up it. And the more that happens, the more we experience the peace of God. Now, having said that, I want us to go to verses 6 through 10, which is the heart of the teaching here. This is going to give us three reasons why we exalt in God. I don't think if you're a Christian who's been walking with the Lord any amount of time, I'm not sure I'm going to say anything in these next three little short points that you're going to say, wow, never heard that before. That's new. That's different. But I'm going to give three implications when we finish, and that's when many of us are going to say, ooh. So let's take the easy part first, all right? Let's look at these three reasons for exaltation. Number one, we exalt in God because he is willing to love us. It's not new to any of us probably. Verses 6 through 8, let's look at verse 6 to begin with. For while we were still weak... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, that word weak literally is helpless. For while we were still helpless, that means without ability. Without ability. Would you right now, even though I'm not going to say another word about it, would you underscore that word without ability? Underscore that word ability. In your mind, without ability. All right? At the right time, what does he mean at the right time? Well, Christ died at a very unique time. It was the perfect time. Do you understand the history of what was going on? Alexander the Great had conquered much of the world at this point. In conquering the world, he had a, a domination, a world domination, as maybe none have ever experienced in leadership. In doing so, he decided that he wanted to he wanted to have roads that would take his people and his troops to any part of the world he needed to go very quickly and without harm. And so they built these incredible roads that went all throughout the known world at that time. At the same time, he said, I want a language that all these peoples that I've conquered can have as a common language. And it was called Koine Greek. It was a, it was a language and is a language that is so specific 
that when he said jump, there were multiple words for jump to tell you how high to jump. They use that as an illustration. I mean, it was very, very, very complex, very specific. Everybody had to learn it, and so there was a common language, which, by the way, is the language of the New Testament. At the proper time, at the exact right time, we've seen now that all the prophecies have come true in the person of Jesus. And now we read the text that follows that Christ died for the ungodly. Let's look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. That means somebody who keeps the laws. Though perhaps for a good person, good person refers to somebody who's lovable, lovely. One would dare even to die. But verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We hear that word sinners and we go, okay, sinners. Okay, I'm not perfect. No, equate this word to enemy. Enemies of God. Hostile to God. Broken relationship. So much so that we read in the first chapter of Romans, in the 18th verse, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I had that discussion with these two men this week. I said, do you know, do you know why people have to suffer the consequences of, of sin? Do you know why we're in the desperate condition that we are in the world today? It's not because we reject Jesus. That would suggest that God owed Jesus as an act of justice to send him. He didn't have to send Jesus. What would happen to every person alive if God had not shown the gift of sending his son? God wouldn't be unrighteous. He didn't have to do that. Well, if he said, if you sin, you shall die, and all people sin, then all people die, if that is true, what God says. And so it puts man in this incredible predicament of having to die. We are sinners. We're enemies of our God. Verse 10, I'll skip verse 9, we'll come back to it. It says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall be saved by his life. So, again, nothing real new there. I think the big point is this. Why would we exalt in God while we're in that circle? What would make us? Well, because God loved us. That's one reason to exalt. And not while we were good people. He loved us when we were his enemies. That makes you do a little bit of yay godding. God-ing, right? Sure it does but not as much as you're about to understand in a few minutes. But it, at least we agree, right? Yeah, that's pretty good. Yay. How about number two? We exalt in God because he is willing to forgo his wrath against us. Here comes verse 9 now. He says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from, uh, by him from the wrath of God. What's the wrath of God? We hear hell. You know, that's a bad term. We don't like it, and it's a bad place to go. And that's been my belief through my Christian life. Oh, I don't want to go to hell. It's probably where a bunch of my buddies are, though. And, you know, you know as bad as it is, at least they'll be there, too. And, you know, that's kind of the way we think, isn't it? 
Maybe I had too much of that thinking, too, until a number of years ago. I was at a conference, and I, I don't have this recording now. I don't know where it is, but I had a man that I highly respect, great integrity, bright man. He said, I want you to, I want you to listen to this. I've researched. This is, this is real. This is, not, this is not a hoax thing. This is a man who died as a, a non-Christian by his own admission, had never had any interest in spiritual things. He was in a hospital, he died, and he was pronounced dead, and, and I think it was 18, 20 minutes later or so, uh, he, they found light. He was breathing again after this long period of time, no brain damage or anything. In his own words, he says, I experienced hell for that period of time. Did he go to hell? I personally don't think so. Maybe he did. Maybe it was a vision. Maybe it was a, maybe it was a dream. I, I, it doesn't even matter to me. I don't even care. But I tell you what, I listened to that tape, and it was him describing what hell was like, which, by the way, ironically, he knew nothing of the Bible, and point after point after point, now that he's grown as a Christian, he tells the story that I didn't realize this, but now, and it was all according to Scripture. He described it just like Scripture would say. But it had more description than what Scripture would even say. Nothing countered it, but, oh, I'm telling you, I listened to it, and it did something to me that I can't explain. My son at that time was, my youngest son was kind of veering away from the truth of God and kind of living his own way and so forth and so on. And, and I really believe that he would tell you these words that, that it, it kind of scared the hell out of him. <laughs> and I don't use that in a wrong and profane way. I'm telling you, it just, and it did me too. You know what I found myself doing? I mean, I didn't know. I didn't know anything could be so horrific as this description. I said, this is a human description of something that may not even be exact or real, but if it can be that bad by human description, and I'm sure it's not a a tent, not even touching the surface of how bad it must be to be isolated from the Creator and put in judgment, and I'm telling you, everything in me, I, I bet for the next weeks, I have never exalted in God as much. I drop to my knees, and I still do to this day. I drop to my knees in the early morning, and I'll say, oh, God, thank you, thank you, thank you that you saved me from that. And this is the point he's making. He says, we exalt in the hope of God. Why? Because as it says in verse 9, because he allows us to forego a place like that for all eternity? Oh, I know a lot of you don't even believe in it. You're going, ah, ah. But I'll tell you this. If you do like I do, it'll cause you to exalt in God. I believe it's real. You probably, most of you do believe it's real. Why would we not exalt in God just by the truth, that mere truth that I am free from ever having to experience God's wrath takes us to the third and final basic truth, and that is we exult in God because he is willing to offer his son's life for us. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Really not saying anything new there, just uh, in a sense, just you know, different words and maybe making different forces, same as verse 9. It's basically saying the same thing. But the summary of these three would be this. This is how I wrote it. I said, why do we exalt? 
because we are loved by God enough to be saved from God's wrath brought about by the sending of God's Son. That's why we would exult in God. Rejoice or boast in God. There are three good reasons. Okay, nothing new, nothing, you know, profound. If you've been in the church any period of time, you that are new, it might be. But for most of the Christians here, okay, basic stuff. I have hesitated whether to share the balance of what I'm going to say in these last closing minutes. I realize that the people of today, through churches beyond, in all places, they love to be inspired Not all love to be fed. To be fed means to be given food, and food sometimes is very delightful food, and some is not so tasty. For me, when I first was introduced to this food, it was not tasty at all. Now I am so thankful before God that I was given this food. I'm going to share a few things in closing, very briefly, that are implications of the text that we have read. The best way I can think of it is this. It's kind of like golf. This is not good, is it? (laughs) When I took up golf at 45, way too old to take it up, all I knew, like most golfers today, is that you swing and hit the ball and go toward a target. That was what golf was. Nobody that knows that about golf ever gets to be a good golfer. Then they start learning there's some deeper things about golf that you got to kind of, and it goes totally contrary to what seems right. Oh, wait, you hit down on the ball if you want it to go up. No, I think you hit it up if you want it to go up. No, 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 you hit down to get it to go up. Really? And everything in you fights against that. Oh, if you want to hit it a long way, then what you want to do is relax. No, no, no. If you want to do something strong, you tighten up and you give it. No, 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 no. You don't do that. You do just the opposite. You've got to relax. And all of these things that just seem opposite backwards. Same is true in the Christian life. Well, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means that you really buy into the fact and believe and accept the fact that Jesus died for you, that he's God and he died for you. Well, that's true. But sometimes you've got to go a little bit deeper. Yeah, I hear that only, uh, what, less than 10% of the people could ever, that play golf could ever break 100. Why? Because that's all they know is you swing, you hit a ball, and you chase it, and you swing, you hit a ball, and you chase it, and they don't get into the, the, the hard things to understand. Well, the same is true in the faith. Many never go any further. I just know Jesus died for me, and that's what counts, and I know it, and I believe it. I want you to listen to these three implications, and I think... If you would just do what I had to do years ago, just chew on it a while. Don't make a judgment. Just chew on it. Implication number one, man has no moral ability to choose Christ. Remember I said underscore that word ability? Man has no moral ability to choose Christ. Here's what I journaled. It is only to the degree, listen carefully, it is only to the degree that we realize our lack of moral ability that we choose to exalt in and glorify God. If I believe that I have moral ability to choose Christ and I choose Christ, I probably am not going to be too 
probable to look and stare and exult in the grace and exult in God? Probably not. But to the degree I buy in, I don't have, I've lost my moral ability. Oh, my goodness. It makes a difference. R.C. Sproul, I'll take a page out of his teaching in one of his books, an excellent theologian. He talks about the definitions that we use today of free will. And he says we got it backwards. Here's what he says about an inadequate definition of free will. He says we think of it as the ability to make a choice without any prejudices, inclinations, or dispositions. That's ridiculous. We've never made any choice without prejudice, inclination, or disposition. If not, we'd just be neutral. We'd just sit here. I wouldn't make any choices. I have no, no, every choice I make in life is due to some prejudice or some inclination or some disposition that one has. The better definition he gives is this. It's the ability to choose what one desires. That's the free will you and I have according to the Scripture. We have the ability to make choices and any choice we choose to make, we can make. But if we're truly making a free will choice, there's nothing coercing us against what we choose and want to do. That's free will. Man has a natural ability to make the decisions of life, any decisions of life. But when it comes to moral ability, that's what man does not have. I won't take the time to read in Romans 3, but if you picked up Romans 3, 10 through 12, you'd see where it says, boy, they're none good. They're none who seek for God. They're none righteous. They're none who seek for God. Why not? Because we don't have the ability to do that. We're in sin. And once we begin to understand that, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's a different deal now. Therefore, before the fall, I love the way Sproul talks about this, before the fall, We had the ability to sin and not to sin. After the fall, we only have the ability to sin. What do you mean? We can't do anything good? Well, yeah, but it's with wrong motive. It's not for the glory of God because we don't have that moral capability. The reality is because man chooses to sin without coercion, there's the point. Because we choose to sin without coercion, we alone are responsible for our lack of ability to choose Christ. Now that's going to throw us back to why Adam, why do I get what he has? We'll look at that the next week. So let's look at number two. It goes from there. God must initiate the work of salvation in man's life. And I won't take the time to read it, but if you'd like to go further, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 9. You begin to realize that, oh, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and he made us alive. And it's a passive word in that Greek, very complex Greek language, which says we didn't do anything. He did it all. He made us alive. I like to think of it as Lazarus. When Lazarus, remember the story of Lazarus is in the grave, and Jesus comes and he calls forth Lazarus. Some of you might not know that story, but he calls forth, and Lazarus has been dead now. He's in the tomb, dead for days. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Well, Lazarus stood up. He stood up, but he couldn't stand up without life. He didn't have the physical ability until it was given to him. Do we put faith and trust in Jesus? Yes. How do we get it? It's because God says, come alive. And with that, we have the responsibility to exhibit a God-enabled faith and repentance. And so, really, God has to initiate the work 
of salvation in man's life. Number three, as a result of that, God receives all the glory for the work of salvation. This is what causes you and me to drop to our knees in the morning and to say in great appreciation and humility, God, I exult in you. I had no hope. It's all about what you've done for me. Today, the modern church, I know, does not accept what I just said. The vast majority will say, no, no, no. Now, you go back a while back. Oh, yeah, this was kind of common belief. But now it's no longer. Modern church says, no, 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 don't buy it anymore. Don't want to believe it, don't like it, will not believe it. Today, the modern church is so self-centered. It is so broken. It is so lacking of holy people. And I do believe with all my heart there's a great connection with this rejection of truth and where the church is today. I tell you, when you begin to see yourself in light of what God has done for us, it causes us to boast or glory in God. And one big piece of that is to understand what he's delivered us from as much as what he's delivered us to. When that begins to be a part of our belief system, then we start thinking about it. When we start thinking about it, we start experiencing it. When we start experiencing it, we feel it. And then we find ourselves finding it so easy to exalt in God. I'm going to close with this. Two readings. I think it puts it pretty well together. Two quotes. Uh, One, (coughs) this first one is from Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest, probably known as the greatest preacher in American history. He says this out of a sermon that he was uh, giving out of Isaiah 32. He says, consider that it is Christ and he only who defends you from wrath. He's a safe defense. Your defense is a high tower. Your city of refuge is impregnable. The eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. Oh, prize the Savior who keeps your soul in safety while thousands of others are carried away by the fury of God's anger. Let Christians who are in doubts and fears concerning their condition fly to Jesus Christ, who is a hiding place uh, from the wind and a shelter from the storm. And then lastly, from Paul Tripp, out of his book, uh, New Morning Mercies, love this. He says, despite our sin, you and I have been welcomed into an eternal relationship with the Lord Almighty because Jesus fully met all the requirements of God that we failed to meet. We no longer have to fear God's wrath. We no longer have to measure up in order to achieve his acceptance. We no longer have to hide in guilt or shame. We are God's forever and ever. He will never withdraw his presence and his promises. No matter how messed up we continue to be, because our standing with him is not based on our performance, but on the perfect record of his son. That's good news right there. The more you begin to hear, understand, and embrace, watch what happens. You'll exult in God. You'll exult in your tribulation. You'll exult in the hope of the glory of God. And the next thing you know, not only do you have peace with God, you've got the peace of God. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. 
please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.